if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 573. Isaiah, chapter 9. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, we are only one week away from Christmas. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like very much time at all. Uh, there is still plenty to get done, plenty to get prepared for it. And the older I get, the more responsibility I have, um, the faster that time seems to fly. But there was a time in my life when that was not the case, uh, where having to wait a week until Christmas would have seemed like an eternity. Not only that, it seemed like always the closer you got to the day, the slower the hours became. No day in my childhood ever seemed to drag quite like Christmas Eve. No night ever felt so long. Actually, some of my most vivid Christmas memories are really lying awake in my sleeping bag, talking and whispering with my cousins upstairs in our room at my, at my grandparents' house, willing ourselves to go to sleep, but having no luck at all, just um, incapable, incapable of putting away that excitement about what was going to happen in just a couple hours. Uh, those are some of the longest nights of my life. Uh, I, I'm sure you know that feeling, right? That anticipation that makes sleep totally impossible. That electric excitement that is more effective than really any energy drink that they sell. <clears throat> now, my grandparents and my aunt and my uncle have always been early risers. So it was really nothing in our family for Christmas morning to start at 5 a.m. Actually, if it started any later than that, we were late, uh, much to the chagrin of my dad. Um, but for us kids, that, that still wasn't quite early enough. We, we probably got maybe four or five hours of sleep, even though we were put to bed at like 8 o'clock uh, in the evening. We just we couldn't do it. So we would lie there awake throughout the night. We'd wake up multiple times and listen to see if you could hear that unmistakable clinking sound of plates as my grandfather was unloading the dishwasher or getting the coffee pot rolling. Uh, we would peer under, I can still see us, we'd peer under the, the door there to see if there was any sign of light downstairs or we, sometimes we'd just flat out come out you know, and say we had to go to the bathroom for the fifth time that night just to see if we could get the nod to come down. Waiting, waiting is hard. Waiting is really hard, especially the harder you want something. It seems like the wait becomes longer when that happens. But also, the harder the wait seems, to, it seems like the harder the wait is, the more joy we actually get out of the moment when it finally arrives. I think it's a, it's a standing principle that the darker the night, the brighter the sunrise. Now, we have been starting, we, we started a new series leading up to Christmas, looking at the arrival of, of Christ and his birth. And last week we were looking at Genesis 3, 15. Now, many years passed between when God gave that promise of an offspring to Adam and Eve who was going to crush the head of the serpent and make all things new again. And when these words were first spoken by the prophet Isaiah, in that time sons were born Hopes were raised, and yet sons also died. Generations came and generations went, and in patience the world waited on this promise to be fulfilled. It groaned, Paul talks about, under that weight. As the years rolled by, 
God's faithfulness to his promise did not flag it and it did not fail. He continued to show the strength of his hand and the power of his might, working through some of the most despised of peoples and most unlikely of ways to exalt the power of his glory, to pave the way for this coming offspring. In that time, God made new promises and new covenants that expanded the original one that he had made in the garden. Promises and covenants, they grew progressively more specific about the hope that was coming. As we study the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, we can trace the unveiling of God's plan to raise up this victorious son through the line of Seth and then through Noah, then through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then as time continues, we learn that this this offspring is also going to be a prophet and we see how he is going to work as a priest. And then we are told that he will be a king, expectant, and we're told to expect a king from the tribe of Judah. And then more specifically, we're told that the offspring is going to come from the royal line of David. And then it's from David, spoiler alert, if you don't know this, you do now, we finally come to the moment that the world had been waiting on, the arrival of the offspring, the birth of Jesus Christ in the town of Bethlehem, or the town of Bethlehem, which was David's city. From where we stand in history, it's easy to take the storyline of the Bible for granted, to, to take even the way that Jesus fulfills that story for granted. It's easy to forget that the people who originally received those promises didn't have that same clear picture that we do. They had to trust God. More importantly, they had to wait. And most of them never got to see the, that promise come to fulfillment in their own lifetimes. I think there's a key lesson for us to learn from the faith of those witnesses. A lesson that teaches us to run well the race that's been laid before us, waiting on Jesus' second coming and the completion of his kingdom, our salvation hope. So our passage this morning is one of those key Christmas texts (coughs) which tells us about the significance of Jesus' birth, who he is, and what he's come to do. It is so accurate, it's so specific, it's easy to forget that these words were spoken about Jesus by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years before his birth. So as we study this passage together, I'm really hoping that God is going to do a couple of things with with you. Uh, I I hope at first he's going to grow your appreciation of his purpose and of his plan. But more than that, my prayer really is that God will use this word to increase your grip on the gospel and encourage you to hope and to wait well as we await the final fulfillment of what Isaiah describes here about the rule of this promised son and the completion of his promised kingdom. So if you will, please stand with me as I read our passage, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of our passage, if you get one thing out of this sermon, is this. We can wait in faithfulness in spite of the darkness of our world because our hope rests on the promised royal son. Because of the promise of this royal son, we can wait in faithfulness no matter how long the wait, no matter how dark the night. Isaiah's prophecy here, as we're looking at the structure of it, has three movements to it. And these are going to be our three points this morning. If you're using the sermon notes, you'll be able to track that through here. But first, in the first movement, Isaiah speaks looking to the future about a sure hope that has come to a people who were held captive in darkness. In the second movement, Isaiah identifies the agent of this cause, the reason for this hope, and how it all comes about in the arrival of a child. And in the third movement, Isaiah speaks about a new reality that comes with the arrival of this promised child. Now, it is not difficult for us to see the connection that this passage shares with the passage we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15, where God promised to provide a son, an offspring, who would remove the curse of sin from us, who would prevail where Adam failed. And it's, it's not difficult either to see how this passage is directly connected and fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to look at next week as we turn to Luke's account of Jesus' birth. So my purpose this morning is not to prove to you that connection. Rather, I hope that God will use this text to deepen your appreciation, really, of what was taking place specifically in the birth of Christ. And then along with that, I hope that God will use this to strengthen your conviction and to strengthen uh, your hope and to hold you fast in the joy that we share in the achievement of what Christ has done even as we live in a world that seems to continue on in darkness. I hope that God will use this passage really to help us live with a firmer kingdom priority and a deeper kingdom hope. So let's look at what Isaiah has to say about the result 
of God's salvation work. So first we see Isaiah speaking about a great reversal. Now in Genesis 3.15, God declared there was going to be enmity, which is a fancy word for war or strife, between the serpent and his offspring and Eve and her offspring. God declared that the offspring of the woman was going to defeat the serpent, though God also said he was going to win this victory by being crushed or being bruised himself, though not in the same way as the serpent was. He would be wounded, but the serpent would be undone. Now, the prophet Isaiah expands our understanding of what was happening there. Uh, And he does that, um, especially in Isaiah 52 and 53, which I kind of quoted some of that last week when we were looking at Genesis 3.15. There, Isaiah tells us how this son was going to suffer for the sins of his people, that he was going to be crushed for iniquity that wasn't his, and that his blood would make his people clean because it would satisfy justice's demand and remove sin's curse from God's people. Now besides explaining how the promised offspring was going to win that victory, Isaiah also helps us to better understand what that victory, what the result of that victory would actually look like. And that's what we're looking at this morning in Isaiah 9, uh, specifically here in verses 1 through 5. Isaiah begins this section describing the condition of the world that has happened, what it looks like after sin and death entered into creation. And he paints a very bleak picture. He he describes it as a place of judgment, of distress and darkness, a, a place of gloom and anguish. Things are this way, not because God had abandoned the world or ceased to speak into it or to work in it. They are this way really because of the the rebellion of mankind continued on. Even with the people of Israel who God called out and set apart to be his own, to whom he had given his law and his covenants, the treason continued on. So in chapter 8, God speaks about a coming invasion of Israel and Judah by the empire of the Assyrians to the north. He says that because his people refused him and and chose to ignore his commands in favor of their sin, He had hidden his face from them. He describes them as a people who have no dawn, who will pass through their land distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, God says, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That is a deep and terrible image. That that is hellish. The people of Israel and Judah weren't just caught up in sin. They were enslaved to it. And as a result, they were consumed by darkness. They loved it. And so God says he was going to give them over to it. He was going to pour out his wrath on them for it. The situation that we read here is eerily similar to what we read about in Revelation 16, verses 10 through 11, which describe in the the bowls of God's wrath how the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They would not repent of their deeds. Now compare that to what we read here in Isaiah 8, which is leading up to our passage this morning, 
We have the same sort of situation. We have a situation where people are enslaved to sin. Sin that leads to death. Sin that blinds and plunges into anguish. It's a spirit that's lost in darkness and without hope. But that's what makes chapter 9 so glorious. Because suddenly in chapter 9, as dark as chapter 8 is, light shines. The dawn comes. And a great reversal takes place. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So it's past. In the former time, he, that's God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The place of darkness, the place that God brought into contempt for the way that his people rebelled against him and chose death over life, rebellion over obedience, is about to become a place of light, a place of glory. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali, you remember when we were going through Joshua and we were going through all the land things and you're like, man, I don't know where these places are. Zebulun and Naphtali are to the north. They were the tribes, the areas that were hit first in the Assyrian invasion and they were wiped clean. They were the first to feel the rod of God's righteous wrath. And yet here, Isaiah says that those places are going to take on new significance. Their shame is going to be removed. Galilee, that backward part of Israel that was despised by so many, called here Galilee of the nations, God says is going to have its shame removed. He is going to do it. It's going to become known for something else. The coming of a promised son who would make things right again. A great reversal is about to take place, accomplished by the Lord himself. And to give us a better idea of what that's actually going to look like, Isaiah says that five things in particular are about to change. First, he says gloom is going to give way to glory. Gloom is going to give way to glory. Notice in verse 1, the gloom and the anguish that Isaiah said was coming is no more. The Lord, though he had poured contempt on Israel in judgment and humbled them, says that he's going to remove that judgment from them. And then he's going to exalt them. He's going to replace the gloom of his people with glory and joy. The second thing that Isaiah says is going to change is that light is going to shine in the darkness. Light is going to shine in the darkness. The people who walked in darkness, Isaiah says, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. Now there is no image greater in my mind to express the difference between gloom and glory than light and darkness. It's in the darkness that despair and fear take over. But it's in a light where hope and life and joy are found. I don't know if you you ever spend any time in the woods, but your imagination can go crazy if you're walking around in the darkness. And then suddenly when the light comes up, when the sun shines, you realize that noise that you were convinced was a mountain lion about to eat you (laughs) is a leaf. Light dispels fear. Light brings joy and hope. The Bible uses light and darkness to describe the difference between 
the glory and the perfection and the holiness of God and the wretchedness of sin and death. That's exactly the way that Isaiah is using it here in verse 2. Those who were dwelling in a place of deep darkness, who were walking in the dread of death's dark night, who were living in the shadow of death, are going to see a great light. Actually, Isaiah says this in the past tense here to make sure we understand how sure this is. There is no question. There's no might. There's no maybe. It's as if it has already taken place, even though we understand that he's speaking about something yet to come. Those who had no dawn, who were called in chapter 8, a people with no dawn, are going to see the sun blazing in its fullness. Those who had no hope, who were destined to die, living in the shadow of death every day, are going to have life and light. Those who found themselves walking in the valley of the shadow of death no longer need to fear evil because the light has broken through to dispel the darkness. Which leads us to the third change Isaiah says is going to take place. Joy will replace emptiness. Isaiah says, you, he's speaking to the Lord here, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, if we remember back to the end of Isaiah 8, which I read for you, God describes how those who were in darkness raged against the Lord and against the king because of their hunger, hunger that was brought there because of their rebellion against the Lord. Here Isaiah is saying that God is going to reverse that. Barrenness and famine and death are going to be expelled. The nation that was brought low in its sin, which beloved sons and daughters were killed, is now going to be multiplied. The joy of the harvest time and the joy of victory on the battlefield, both of which are divine gifts according to Deuteronomy 28, verses 2 through 8, are going to, be re- are going to replace the emptiness of the darkness. The fourth thing that Isaiah says is going to change is that oppression will cease because the oppressor will be broken. In verse 4, he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, there's actually two references going on here. The first is to Israel's time in Egypt. and They were enslaved in Egypt. The second reference here is actually to the days of the judges when God used Gideon to deliver Israel from the forces of Midian. And especially, here's a fun little fact just to notice. Gideon specifically delivered the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Okay? So you see how this is coming full circle here? The oppressor, this is the reason he says Midian and not the Philistines. Because God is going to reverse what has happened. Now there's something to notice about the way that Isaiah introduces this force change. And that's the way he used the word for. We're starting to see not just the changes that are going to take place, but the reason that those other changes were going to take place. The reason the gloom, darkness, and emptiness are going to be replaced is due in part to the way that God says He's going to put an end to the oppression of His people and the way He's going to break the oppressor. God is saying that He's going to remove the burdens and the blows of the tyrants that have been put over His people because of their sin. And He's going to lead them out from their darkness. 
Just as he did as he led them out from Egypt. Just as he did when he delivered them out from the thumb of the Midianites. He's going to remove their burdens and the blows of those tyrants who have been allowed to rule over them. And that leads us then to the fifth change Isaiah speaks of and another reason that all of this is taking place, which is that all war will be brought to an end. The war will end. Isaiah says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's going to be peace, Isaiah says. Those boots of soldiers that used to shake the ground, the armor and the clothes which were soaked in the blood of of Israelites, it will no longer have a place in this new reality that God is bringing about. Uh, J. Alec Motier points out that the words which are used here to describe these weapons of war are only found here in the Old Testament. And they're actually loan words, words which were taken from other languages. And he explains that that's significant because Isaiah, it seems that they are clearly chosen here to express, for God is expressing how he's going to break foreign powers. People who were outside of Israel oppressing his people, turning these relics of military hardware into tools of this Eden, this peace that he's bringing. Here, Motir says, everything combustible either goes to the bonfire or to the domestic hearth. War is over, but the people have not fought the final battle. They have simply entered the battlefield only after the fighting is done. What a beautiful picture. What a radical change. This is a complete reversal of the darkness and the gloom that comes as a result of sin. Though these promises are focused specifically on the nation of Israel and Judah, they also carry a a global hope with them since the nations are mentioned here in verse 1 with Galilee of the nations being set. So we have glory, light, joy, freedom, peace. This, these are the fruits of God's victory for his people. In his work, it it is his work, since as we see in the end of verse 7, God says that his zeal would be what did this. It's God's steadfast love. It's his commitment to the glory of his name, which assures and ensures everything that is spoken about here. God and God alone can lay claim to to accomplishing this, of, of bringing glory to those lost in gloom, of bringing light to those lost in darkness, of bringing joy to those who were empty, freedom to the oppressed, and peace to the war-torn. But along with that, Isaiah tells us about the one through whom God says he's going to bring this new reality to pass. He tells us, that, he tells us about the one upon whom all these promises hang. And strangely enough, he tells us about a child. That brings us to our second point. We get to look at the restorer. So we looked at this reversal that God says he's going to do, and now we see the agent of that change, the one who will bring restoration. In verse 6, we get to the final and ultimate explanation for why all this is going to happen. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Savor those words. Everything that we've read about so far, this divine rescue, this dawning of a new day, comes through the birth of a child who is the promised offspring. 
It's this verse that really connects us to that first promise God spoke in Genesis 3.15, that he was going to bring victory and salvation to his people through the offspring of the woman. Isaiah is saying that this child is going to be the one through whom God is going to bring about all his redemptive promises to make them come to pass. This child is going to bring glory to those who are in gloom, light to those living in the darkness of death's dark shadow, fullness of joy to the empty and broken, freedom to the oppressed, and peace to the world. He's the source of all of this. And what's really interesting about this verse is the way Isaiah focuses specifically about his birth. Notice he doesn't say anything about the acts of the child. Rather, as Motir points out, all the emphasis here falls specifically on the mere fact of his birth. It's in his coming that all these things are at once secured. Now the reason I think Isaiah puts the birth of this child at the forefront of this hope is specifically because of who this child is. This is not just another baby. This, and let me tell you, there's a, having a baby is a joyous occasion. But this is something special about this baby. This is a royal son. Not just royal in an earthly sense, but in a heavenly one. So let's take a deeper look at what Isaiah says about him. First, notice that the son is a gift. He is given by God. Every child is a gift from God, but this one is special. He is the one through whom God says he's going to bring about all these promises, these promises of salvation and restoration. He is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He is the zeal of the Lord of hosts because he is God himself. Second, notice that this son who is given by God is given to rule and to reign as king. And it's through that rule that this child is going to make his people flourish and rescue them from the hand of their oppressors. Isaiah says this child is going to take the weight of government upon his shoulder. The burden that God says is also going to be removed from the shoulder of his people. That burden, God says, is going to be taken from off his people and put on this son. Third, notice that the reason this son is able to bear that burden is because of who he is. Isaiah says that this son will be called by four amazing names. Let's look at those. First, he says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, which means he will rule in wisdom because he will have wisdom that can only be explained by the supernatural. Now, King Solomon, you may remember, was known all over the world for being a wise king. People would travel near and far to hear his counsel, just to sit and listen to what he had to say, to judge in different cases that were brought before him. The Bible explains that Solomon received that wisdom from God. And we get a kind of idea of that same thing here in Isaiah as he describes this son. Only the rule of this son stands out from that of, of Solomon because Solomon, wise as he was, did not always live by his wisdom. As he grew old, his heart was led astray, we're told, by his many wives to serve other gods. And then in, after his death, the kingdom of Israel was split in two by his foolish son. This son, we are meant to to understand, will excel where Solomon failed. The second name that Isaiah says he will be called by is Mighty God. The rule of this promised son, Isaiah says, will excel that of Solomon, not only in wisdom, 
but in strength and power. In verse 7, Isaiah says that there will be no end to his kingdom, and here we see why. Not only does he have wisdom from God, he is God. The title here, which is used here, which is in the Hebrew, El Gibor, calls God's strength to mind. The Giborim were mighty men, valiant warriors, kind of like knights. Uh, who did great things to defend the nation. That's the root word that is being used here. This is something you use as someone who's mighty to save. Those men who were the Giborim lived and did great things, but they died. But this child's rule has no end, Isaiah says. He's going to rule in the wisdom of God, and he's going to rule with the power of God, because Isaiah says he is God. Isaiah is not messing around in chapter 8 when he talks about Emmanuel, God with us. He means us to take that seriously. And he explains that the presence of God with his people is going to be centralized here in this Son whom he is giving to them. In John, I, I, I hope you're making a connection to a very well-known verse, John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. How do you know that God loved the world? In what way did God love the world? He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. When Jesus said that, He wasn't just saying that He, as the Son of God, was just like God or He had characteristics that were God-like. No, He was making a divine claim about himself. Something that he and he alone is able to say. He was echoing what Isaiah spoke of here. Something that makes Jesus uniquely qualified to reign as this king and to bring about everything God said was going to happen in verses 1 through 5. Now the third name that the son receives is everlasting father. Now that's pretty interesting. Applying the word everlasting father to this son. What you need to know about this, this is not a kingly title. It is a divine one. One which describes the sort of care and concern which God has for the hopeless and the helpless. What this is saying is that the rule of this promised son is going to reflect the same sort of fatherly affection that God has for his people. A love that shows up in the way that he cares for them, provides for them, disciplines them, and shepherds them. The fact that Isaiah says he will be called everlasting or eternal father again identifies this child with God since everlasting is something we only ever see used in the scriptures to describe him. The fourth name that we receive that we're told he will be called is Prince of Peace. Now this final name really completes the picture of what Isaiah has been painting. The, the, the peace which Isaiah is describing here is not just the stopping of war. It's actually the picture of completeness and wholeness. It is shalom. By calling this child the Prince of Peace, Isaiah is not only saying that he will contain the reality of peace within himself, but also that he will extend that peace to his people. As their prince, this promised one is going to administer wholeness and completeness to his people. 
As the fountain of peace, peace will flow like water from him to them, making them one with God and one with each other. So you can see why all the promises of verses 1 through 5 hinge on this child. Why he and he alone is able to accomplish this. Isaiah says that this son will be a wise ruler who will deliver his people with the might of God, who will rule with fatherly affection for his people, and who will bring peace to them through his eternal rule. This child is Emmanuel. Isaiah's message of hope is that the darkness is going to be reversed. Sin is going to be defeated. Death will be no more. And all of this will be because of the birth of a child who is God with us. Now, as I read these words, I can't help but think about the chorus of the angels as they sang and praised the Lord in the moments when they just told the shepherds that Jesus had been born. Those angels describe something, a new reality that had happened with the birth of Christ. And that brings us to our third point this morning, to see the state of a new union. We've seen the promise of a great reversal. We've seen the reverser. And now we're looking at the state of his rule, the state of his kingdom, a state which the angels sang, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill, to those with whom he is pleased. Those angels gave glory to God because with the arrival of the promised son, the hope of generations had been fulfilled. So as we come now to verse 7, Isaiah closes out this section by just surveying the new reality that has arrived with the gift of God's beloved son. First, he tells us about the trajectory of this kingdom, the kingdom of this royal son. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, I don't think there's any one of us that hasn't wished that God would just do something like what we saw with Marvel, right? Or just snap his fingers and that everything would be the way it's supposed to be, right? Well, God didn't do that. He doesn't make things right in an instant. The picture that Isaiah draws here about the kingdom of the promised child is that it is steadily and surely increasing. It will expand and grow. Isaiah says the increase of the government of this king will never stop growing, and the peace that comes with his rule as a result will never cease. Jesus reflects this same sort of pattern in his own teaching while he was on earth. He actually teaches us. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which starts small, and which is planted in the ground, but then grows into the greatest of all garden plants. It gives shelter and food to all. He also taught that the kingdom of God was like three measures of yeast that were placed in the midst of a loaf of bread. What does that have to do with the kingdom? Well, bread grows slowly, but it grows surely. In his parable of the four soils, the soil we see that what actually brought forth lasting and bountiful fruit was not the soil where the seed fell on and then it sprang up quickly. It was the soil where the roots grew deep and then it grew over time. The arrival of the sun, this sun that Isaiah speaks of, was not impressive in terms of what we would expect of royalty. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, a place for animals to come eat. 
the only people who seem to have recognized that a, a king had arrived and treat him as any sort of royalty were these wise men from the east, Gentiles, who came in and worshipped him. Everyone else thought he was someone else. Though as a child Jesus astounded the teachers in the temple with his grasp of the scriptures, he was known to most merely as Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, a humble son of a humble carpenter named Joseph. In his ministry, the crowds were at odds with each other, trying to figure out who he could possibly be. Cole and I were just reading in John, John 7, as, as the Pharisees are saying to each other, See, look at the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee. And yet, here we have. I guess they missed this one. Most of the crowd that gathered around Jesus just did it to see a spectacle. They left when things got hard. Jesus was betrayed to his enemies by one of his closest friends. And then he died in the worst of ways, being labeled as an enemy of the state, being killed because he was a king. And yet he rooked. He rose in victory. And look at the kingdom of Christ now. The sun never sets on the rule of King Jesus. And while it's tempting for you and me to look at the increasing hardness of people in our town, or in our nation, or even in our families to this, the reality is that the gospel has impacted and affected all of us. It's fundamentally altered the history of of the world. More than that, for all of us who are here who have come to believe in Jesus as our Savior, we have been fundamentally changed in our very hearts and our souls. We're not who we used to be. Light has dawned in our hearts and we know that this is true. Not just because the gospel is logically sound or because it provides us with a, a fundamental worldview but because we have experienced the miracle of the new birth for ourselves, and we're not the same. We have tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good, that His faithfuls, His fee is faithful to keep all of His promises. We have come to a real working relationship with God who has made us new and who has given us hearts that love Him out of His own love. We've experienced the miracle of God's salvation. And now we are part of this growing, never-ending kingdom. His peace has become our peace. More than that, it is expanding into places that have never heard it before. Earlier we prayed for the hunts, right? Do you know what God is doing through that university? He is raising pastors and teachers and church planters and people who can go places you and I cannot. And the nation of, uh, the nation of Zambia and the continent of Africa dark as it may be is receiving light I don't know if you know this but the center of Christendom as it has been said has shifted it's not Europe and it's not the US it's actually Asia and Africa do you know who's doing that God is doing that we can rejoice in that I love when our missionary partners come back because we get to hear about the amazing things God is doing there and it just helps us to raise our eyes up and to see the kingdom is expanding Isaiah's right he's right the kingdom is here it's increasing and therefore because we see that reality we can trust the rest of what Isaiah says this will have no end 
Look at the detail that Isaiah gives us about the rule and the reign of Jesus. He says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now that takes us back to the promise God made to David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. Isaiah's prophecy here, we see he's drawing our attention to the way that God made that promise a reality in Christ. Christ, Jesus, has elevated David's throne. God gave him an offspring who is God and man. From that throne, Jesus reigns even now. And we are told that he will always act, not only to establish that throne as he did when he went to the cross, but also to uphold that throne with justice and righteousness forevermore. I wonder wonder what it was like for Isaiah when he first wrote these words down. These are beautiful words. Now, these are the kind of words you just want to sit and soak in. Can you imagine being Isaiah, writing these words down, even in the face of the impending invasion and destruction that was coming from the north? Can you imagine that? To write about light and life and righteousness and a king whose kingdom would have no end, to know that in a few years, Israel was going to be wiped off the face of the map, Judah was going to be surrounded up to the very neck, and be only delivered by a mighty act of God? hard. At that time when Isaiah wrote these things, Ahaz was the one on David's throne. He was a wicked king. He fell well short of the promise of this prophecy. He was like Adam in the sense that he only used his position of authority to plunge his people deeper into gloom and shadow. I don't know if Isaiah fully understood the significance of what God inspired him to write. But what I do know is that God has kept his promise. And he rewarded the faith and the hope and the patience of Isaiah as he waited on this promised child. God gave that promised child who is uniquely able to claim authority, not not only over the earth, but over heaven as well, because he holds the keys in his hand. I think it's easy enough for us to read Isaiah 9 and to connect it to Christmas. But I just want to leave you this morning with one more thought. This passage was given to us not just to help us understand the meaning of the significance of Christmas, but it is also given to us to help us hope in the King who came on that day, fulfilling the Scriptures and fulfilling our hope. Isaiah speaks about this in the past tense, and it was future to him. But he does so because it was that sure. And so it is for us who have seen how Christ has fulfilled this and who are yet waiting for the final and full fulfillment of that, which is assured to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is easy to resonate with Longfellow's I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day to look at the violence and the darkness of our world and to think there is no peace on earth. Is this gospel real? But then Isaiah 9 doesn't point us to the world to find our peace, does it? No. It points us to a prince, a king, a royal child whose birth signaled the death of darkness in whose life we have light. Isaiah didn't just promise a king was going to enter the world as a baby. He promised that the rule of that king would never end. He was right about the birth of our Savior and time will prove that he was right about our Savior's throne as well. So, take heart, brothers and sisters. It's Christmas.
God's zeal is not done. He who gave us his only son, will he not also with him give us all things which he has promised? Yes, he will. Let's pray. God, we come before you as a people who know the reality of our weakness, who wrestle day in and day out with old desires, old passions, doubts, fears, inadequacies, who stand rightly accused by Satan of everything that we've done wrong. And yet you've removed that sentence from us. And we have only to point to Christ and to say, there lies my hope. Father, it's because of him that we can enter boldly into your presence, even right now, to even address you. Otherwise, we would be cut off from you. We would be that people lost in gloom and darkness, without hope, without light, without life, without any future. Here to eat and drink and be merry and to die. And you have given us so much more in the body and the blood of Christ. Father, we want more than anything to dine together in his presence at the great feast of the Lamb. So give us patience to wait. Give us patience to work. Let us recognize that the time of your waiting is time of patience. And let us not waste that time. But Father, we pray that you would work through us to be faithful workers in your field. And that as we do, we would have eyes to see your hand at work. And we would rejoice in the continued expansion of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.